In addition to your the regular outline I usually hand out, I also gave you today something for the month of October. So we're a week away, but I wanted you to have this ahead of time, and there will be additional copies available here throughout the month. When we get to October, let's just call it the month of being. 31 days of being. And you can see on that calendar, it, it, it begins appropriately with begin and um, and become and, and be, be joyful and be confident and, and many other words that we find in Scripture about not just doing things for God, but being who we are in Christ. That is a whole different way of thinking. That is a whole different um, dynamic that we should understand and need to understand and embrace from the scriptures that our, our way to God, our relationship with God is something that, that we become as we trust in him, as we, as we understand more and more deeply. And we're going to see some of that in the scriptures today. So each day of October, I encourage you, put this in a prominent place. Um, uh, Paul, I was wondering if, if we can get this on the website in some form the calendar, and, and uh, so if you want to go there to look for it, you can find it as well. And um, so every day you're going to focus on that word, and there's a scripture reference associated with that word. And so read that, think about the word, and say a prayer. It doesn't have to take long. I encourage you strongly to do it first thing in the morning so it kind of hangs with you all day. And if your morning routine is really hectic and busy, I know you're not going to carve out 20 minutes to focus on this. But if you can carve out two or three, just enough to say, okay, what's today's word? Good. Okay, today, be gentle. All right, be gentle. Lord, I don't know how to do that, but help me do that. Amen. Something like that. Read the scripture and go with it. So this is what I encourage you to do, and and, and that is to... um, Focus each day. And then we're doing this together. And I'm really excited about what God's going to show each of us and collectively what we are seeing about our being. Hey, I kind of like that. What we're seeing about our being. Okay. I'm going I'm to have to copyright that. All right. So by the time we get to November, we are continually to, we are, we are becoming more and more like Jesus. And understand who Jesus is and, and what, what he's calling us into. What he wants us to become. So use that and pray about that. And together we'll, uh, just awesome things are going to happen. Today's scripture is from, uh, again, the first chapter of Philippians. And last week we began this book, looking in detail at, at each verse and, and pulling out certain phrases and words that are helpful. We're going to do that again today with, with verses 7 through 11. And as, as I point out various things, I hope that you're going to see some of that and it'll be a blessing and a help and an encouragement to you. Perhaps you're seeing other things that I'm not saying, but God's speaking to you. Awesome. That's the idea here. Some of you studied this book all summer and already have some things that you've learned and maybe you need to be reminded of something you read back in June or July or August and something else that um, you forgot about. So God is going to touch you through the scriptures when you are open to that happening. Every time. Are you open to what the Lord has to say and what he has to reveal? And as we go through Philippians, kind of use this catchy little phrase, positively present Philippian focus. 
Because that's what Philippians is about. This letter to this church in a town called Philippi is, is just loaded with encouragement, loaded with joy. Paul is so excited to write it. It's positivity, encouragement, and there's some of these B words in this book. So look for those things as, as we read today, as you do your own time in the Word, and God will certainly bless that. Now, in the first six verses that we looked at last week, there's this introduction, basically, which is normal in a letter that you're writing. And right from the get-go, you see that Paul is excited to write this. These people are so special to him. Now, understand, every, everything that happened in the book of Acts is now past at the moment this was written. All of the places that Paul went, all of the churches he started, all of the ways in which he suffered, all the glorious miracles and, and exciting things that happened, all the churches that, that were planted. And this is you know, dozens and dozens of locations, not just the ones we have letters to, like the letter to Corinth, the letter to Ephesus, the letter to Colossae and Thessalonica, and then those individual letters to, to, to Timothy and Titus and Philemon. But that's all past because Paul, as he's writing this, is awaiting hearing before Caesar himself because a couple of years before that, he was accused of starting a riot in Jerusalem. And we'll, we'll come back to that in a, in a couple of minutes. But this letter was written when all of that was done. And he's writing letters to other churches as well. Those that we have in the scriptures, others were certain that were just lost to antiquity. They're gone somewhere. It'd be kind of cool if we found one one day. But he, he wrote. He liked to write, and he liked to hear communication. So he's, in, he's imprisoned in Rome, and yet it's under house arrest. You can read about that in detail in the, the 28th chapter of Acts. And while he's there, he's able to have visitors come and go. And he's able to send letters to them and receive letters from others. And so it, it's a very productive time while he's in prison. And we don't know what happened after that. He may have been put to death by Caesar. He may have gone to Spain or something else. The Bible itself doesn't tell us what happened. Okay, so we're, we're left to, to other sources to say it might have been this and might have been that. But I say all of that to emphasize this. Philippians, of all the letters he wrote, is so positive. He's so excited to write to them. So he picks up on that same theme. Oh, I thank my God every time I, I, I think about you. Every time I pray about you, I'm excited. It brings a smile to my face, joy to my heart. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. Since I have you in my heart. If you could get an app on your smartphone that would bring to your screen the contents of your heart. Do you want that? <laughs> would you like to see that on the screen? And when it came up and, and listed it, or maybe it's pictures, I don't know. Maybe it's people's faces. Now, I don't know about you, but while what you're going to see in my heart is just like I said with the kids, who do you love? Yeah, well, my heart, my, I see my wife, Linda. You see my daughters, their husbands, my grandchildren, 
We'll see, we'll see you guys and, and my friends and, you know, fellow believers and, and, and others. Those things are in my heart, but there's also other stuff. I'm going to scroll down further. Ooh, that's in my heart too. Let's delete that one. Oh, yeah, yeah, let's not say that. I'm not going to put that on Facebook, you know. <laughs> Imagine if that were possible and you'd see it. So, so this phrase here, this, what he's saying, since I have you in my heart, do we look at our hearts to see what is in and who is in it? And he is saying to this church, you are in my heart. You are so special to me. I love you so very deeply. Which he kind of goes on to say that. He says, whether I am in chains, that's a figurative way of saying he's imprisoned in Rome. Most scholars don't believe he was physically in chains at that moment. But he was in prison so he couldn't leave. So figuratively he's in chains. Or defending or confirming the gospel. Let's look at those two words for a moment. Defending the gospel. Now, why did he have to do that? What was there to defend? Or who, who was he defending the gospel against? Well, it was several different people groups or, or categories. First of all, there was his own people, the Jews, who didn't believe in Jesus. And his heart broke that they didn't. You can read about that in Romans. You know, his heart breaks. He, he wishes they would accept and embrace Jesus as their Messiah, that, that he truly believed and knew he was, but most of his fellow Jews wouldn't go there with him. And in fact, when he visited Jerusalem and tried to convince some of them, some of his old friends from the Sanhedrin and, and, and other Pharisees that he was among when he was himself opposing Christianity and working hard against it, arresting and even having people put to death. But when he was converted, when, when, when he was blinded by that light and the voice of Christ from heaven on the road to Damascus, that changed everything. And he went from passionate opposition to Jesus to passionate love for Jesus. And he wished his Jewish Brothers and sisters would do the same, but they wouldn't, most of them. There were some that did, of course, the other apostles before he did. But he has to defend against them. He's in Jerusalem, and then it's not going well. In fact, a riot breaks out in Jerusalem, and he's blamed for it. And that is what he was arrested for that led to him going to Rome to have a hearing with Caesar which only happened because he was a Roman citizen and he appealed his case to Caesar. He knew he didn't actually cause the riot. He knew it was uh, an injustice that he's even going through this. So I'm going to take it to Caesar. So for the next couple of years, and you can read all about that in the second half of the book of Acts, basically, about his journey and the, and the governors that he went before to plead his case and moving up the legal system, if you will, through the Roman Empire and eventually getting to Rome, where he was awaiting trial and writing this. Defending the gospel against not just my own people, but defending against the Romans who want nothing to do with it. Now, for the most part, at the start, the Romans didn't really care about those pesky people down in Judea. They were just a small little place in a vast empire. 
And as long as they don't create problems, and sometimes they did, and they're kind of weird down there in, in that they, they only believe in one God and, and try to say that that's the only God. That's crazy that most people had many gods. In fact, if the more gods you had, the more successful you were. At least that was the idea. And so there's these people that say there's only one God. So if they were just weird, that's one thing. But then a what they would call a sect from that one God people, the Jews, came out and they followed a man that came among them named Jesus. And now, hey, wait, this is growing. And these people are changing and, well, it's causing riots. Oh, so now the Romans are paying attention. Not just because they disagreed with the theology of it all, but because it was disrupting the peace. And the way the Roman Empire was was built was just by brutality and conquest. And once the conquest was done, okay, we're going to help you live as well as you can and to prosper, but don't mess with us or we'll crush you again. So fear was the factor in keeping the people under control. And it worked for centuries. So when peace was disrupted, the Romans came against the Christians. So Paul's defending against the Jews. He's defending against the Romans. He's defending against other people who claimed to follow Jesus. There was a group that emerged very early on in Christian history called Gnostics. Now, Gnosticism is kind of complicated, to be honest with you, but the one aspect of Gnostics that Paul had the biggest problem with was that they, they, had, they liked what Jesus said, they liked what he stood for, but when you went to that teaching about he died on the cross and rose again. They said, no, 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 no. Gods don't die. What do you mean? That's, that's crazy. Why would a God die? Why would he give himself up like that? You know? So they decided that Jesus really didn't die. He just looked like he did. Like, like Jesus himself was even almost, almost like a ghost. So he was this, this aberration that, that did these miracles, that, that preached and they taught, and then he suffered and he died and he rose again, but it was all a ghost, basically. That's, again, among other things, that's what Gnostics were teaching. So, so Paul is rightly coming out against that and defending the gospel message because the gospel message is that, yes, Jesus was born and lived and died and rose again. And if he didn't rise again, as he says himself, we are without hope. We are fools because we're following a man. Because he died like any other man. But if indeed he rose from the grave, which he did, then he is the Son of God. Then he is who he said he was all along. And this is the one we are to follow. This is the one who gave himself up for, for all of humanity to take care of our collective and personal sin problem. Praise God. And that's what Paul's excited about. So when people who claim to be his followers want to diminish that message, he's going to defend and confirm against that as well. By the way, uh, John the Apostle, who wrote, among other things, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John in the back of your Bible, the, the reason he wrote those books in part, those letters, was to fight Gnosticism. Because when you begin in the, in the first verse of the first chapter of 1st John, 
He says, this is the message that we have heard from the beginning. He who that we touched, we saw, and we were with. Touched. Because if you're a Gnostic, well, you couldn't touch Jesus. He, just, he was a ghost. And John's saying, no, I was there. I was next to him. I ate with this man. I wept with this man. I embraced this man. He was real as you and I are. And then he, he was fighting against that in his writings. Defending and confirming the gospel. Something we still have to do today. All of you share in God's grace with me. The grace of God. The love of God given to us freely. It's not enough that Jesus died and rose again. Yes, that's what we need. But what does the resurrection mean to us then? So if you embrace the truth of the resurrection, then what? Well, God gave you grace based upon the power of the risen Son. The grace was that I see you the way you are. I know the way you are. I see all of you, including your failure and your sin. And I love you and I forgive you. Believe it. That's it. There it is. That's grace. Eighth verse then says, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. What a beautiful phrase. The affection of Christ Jesus. What is that? How deeply does Jesus love you? How far into your ditch has Jesus gone with you? And if you don't believe that, then believe it. Start believing that. Because too often we think of Jesus as, okay, I know God's with me. I believe in the resurrection. I know he's there. But he's kind of hanging out on the periphery, just kind of watching to see how I'm doing. Oh, good luck, Paul. Need anything? Let me know. I'm here. Oh, Paul, that wasn't good. Oh, Paul, hey, that was a good sermon today. Great, Paul. And, and, and is, is that the Jesus we think of? The one who's kind of apart from us and giving us advice and critique. Too often, that's the Jesus to have, some people have in their mind's eye. The Jesus of scriptures is the one who through his spirit is in you, guiding you, nudging you, prodding you, and loving you right in the mess, right there in the dirt. Picture Jesus there with you in that really awful moment. Picture Jesus there with you in the shame and the awkwardness and the embarrassment. He's there, and he doesn't condemn you while he's there. He loves you there. That's the gospel. That's the affection of Jesus Christ. That's how deeply it goes. So when Paul says, I love you with the affection of Christ Jesus, he's saying he's taking that love which has impacted him and giving it out and giving it out and giving it out. Just like in the Lord's Prayer that we said a few moments ago. We forgive. We are forgiven, therefore we forgive others. It is a pass-through thing. God has forgiven me of some terrible things I've said and done in my 63 years. How dare I withhold forgiveness from someone else for anything. This is what we're called into to, again... Become. And then the verses 9 through 11 is one sentence and it's one prayer. And, and Paul does this a lot in his writings. He has these, these long sentences with these beautiful, flowing, building power that he's expressing. So let's hear this together once again. 
Uh, and this is my prayer that you may love, that, excuse me, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Wow, what a prayer. Isn't that beautiful? And Paul writes that kind of depth frequently in Scripture. Well, he'll make these lists of good things that we should aspire to, but he'll also make the list of things that we should be avoiding and, and, and rooting out of our lives and trusting God to help us to overcome. And for example, in, in Galatians 5, we have the fruit of the Spirit. Many of you are very familiar with that love and joy and peace and patience and, and, and gentleness, the things that, that we, we want to have in our lives and see happen in us. Or the description of love itself in, in 1 Corinthians 13, that you know, love is patient and kind and not envious, not rude, not boastful, all the things that love is and love is not. And we want that. And so we look at lists like that and say, yeah, I'm going to go for that one. I'm kind of weak on this. But this prayer isn't so much a list. Even though you see good things there, we have love and then we have knowledge and depth of insight, discernment, purity, blamelessness. Um, righteousness, the fruit of righteousness, and glory and praise to God. So we want those things. But in this prayer, please notice how it begins. That your love may abound. And everything that's after that is under the category of love. It's not as if you'd make an outline of this prayer and say, okay, the good things in this prayer that Paul wants for the church there and for us are... You know, love and knowledge and depth of insight and discernment, etc. You know, like one, two, three, four, five on a, on a bullet point outline. No, it's more like this. Roman numeral one, love. And then underneath Roman numeral one comes A, knowledge, B, depth of insight, C. You see the difference there. What, we, what he is encouraging us to grow into and to become and to change is our understanding of love and, and to continue to understand the depth of love. As I said with the children, we, we use the same word for love as for our spouse as we do for our favorite food or our favorite sports team or song on the radio or whatever. But of course, we understand that there's a difference there. In, in the Greek, there's four words for love. So, so we have kind of a language problem to the point where we can say something like the Beatles did, all you need is love, and they're right. <laughs> and yet we kind of tune it out. It almost becomes white noise. Yeah, yeah, more love. I understand. Blah, blah, blah. Get to the good stuff. Wait a minute. No, love is the good stuff. But what we've done is we have made love too shallow made love too weak. It's not. It's the most powerful thing in the universe. But we, look, we treat it as if it's this wimpy thing almost, or this nice thing where you can get to it. You know, okay, love is good as long as it's working. When things go bad, you have to turn to really hard truth and, and hard principles and tough decisions. And, you know, love's got nothing to do with those. Really? So Paul's desire, Paul's prayer. Now, he, he builds up to this prayer for eight verses. He's excited about these people. And so the one thing, what's the one thing he wants to get across to them in this letter, in this opening prayer? It isn't like, okay, all of you behave. 
Now, all of you, um, you know, be nice to one another. And No, it's love. And what kind of love is Paul pointing to? A love that goes to, that abounds in knowledge. Now, I can know what love is scripturally. I can memorize 1 Corinthians 13. I can read through, especially 1 John, where, where the scripture I mentioned to the children, you know, God is love. All who love have been born of God. What does that mean? Wow, that's pretty deep. So we can read about love. We can memorize the verses. But let's take it further. It's not just knowing it here. It's living it here and here and here in my feet, my hands, my voice, everything. I know love because, now hear this, I'm experiencing love. It, 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 it's the knowledge of someone who's been there and done that. It's not someone who just read about it. Now, reading about it is important, and, and that's, that can be the catalyst or the starting point. But we have to have experiential love, knowing it experientially. And that's what Paul is there. And when we do that, we courageously let that love go deeper and deeper and deeper. Depth of insight. Wow, God, you really do love me in that awful place. Oh, I can't forgive my friend. I can't forgive my family member. Have you ever said that to someone? Has that ever been said to you? I can't forgive you for that. And as I said before, I'll say it again. Once someone goes there at the heart level and decides, I can't forgive, you stop growing. That you, you, can, you can put surface stuff up, you can memorize verses and look the part, but at the heart level, you stop growing until you ask for the strength and the power to forgive that person. And I'm not saying it's easy, and I'm not saying it's quick, but it's a matter of the desire of the heart. And this is what knowledge and depth of insight of love does when we allow it. Again, God is a gentleman. And he's not going to force his way into our heart of hearts. He's ready. He's there. And, and, and in another way, he's already there. But as I, as I shared a couple of weeks ago about some of the things I learned during sabbatical is that it, it's a process of uncovery. Of, there's things that get in the way of who I really am buried somewhere deep inside because I've, I piled all this junk on top of the ways of God. And I can't even hear his voice anymore. It's all covered up. So I have to uncover it and then realize that's who I was supposed to be all along. You're there, Jesus. Thank you. And you've been there all along. It wasn't as if he just walked in and he has to catch up on your history. Okay, what'd you do? Get Fill me in. He saw it. He saw it all along. He saw it before you believed. He saw it before, before you understood what it was. The thing that happened last week, the thing that happened to you that, that has traumatized you, the things that happened in your childhood that you're still overcoming, all of that, he was there, he saw it, he knows it, and he loves you right there. That is depth of insight. That's what Paul's praying for them, praying for us. And then what happens when we allow the love of God to go to these deeper and deeper places? It's kind of like what it says in the book of Hebrews about the word of God. Now, it's not 
the pages and the letters on the book in the book. Now it is that because it, it it shows us what it is, it tells us what it is, but it is the power behind the words that is the Word of God, capital W. Jesus, as he's identified in John chapter 1, the Word was life. So the Word of God in Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews, is compared to a sword that, that cuts deeply into us. And so, so the truth that the Word of God contains will go into you like a surgeon's scalpel to get out the thing that could kill you, the thing that's hurting you, the thing that needs to be changed, to taken care of, addressed way somewhere inside of you. It even says in that same passage, right down to, to, to the bone, the, the, the joints, the marrow, the ligaments, way inside there. You know, I've had a few surgeries in my life, one very recently, and my first surgery ever was on my knee, and it was 40 years ago. And they went in there and they repaired the ligaments and now they don't work anymore. But, <laughs> but that hurt. It hurt a lot. It hurt for days. And that's also the truth about the love of God. It, it hurts and yet it's a good hurt. It's a good pain because something has to be taken care of deep inside. And you know in your heart of hearts that what's showing up on your heart app really isn't good. But how on earth do I change that, God? What can I do to get there? I don't even know for sure what it is. I just know I don't like it. And so in faith, in time, in patience, in prayer, and with support of others, especially people who've walked similar paths or had similar experiences, Trust God's love to take you that deep that the sword of His Spirit would cut through and open up everything. And God wants me to go down this lane a little bit further. So, um, C.S. Lewis, uh, I've used the story before, but it's a, it's a great one. C.S. Lewis wrote the Chronicles of Narnia and in the, in the book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, there, there's a character there who's, who's the cousin of, uh, of the four Pevensey children. If you have no idea who any of these are, don't worry about it, okay? I'll, I'll, you'll understand the, the, the point of the story. But Eustace gets swept into this magical land of Narnia with two of his cousins. And, and he's terrified, and what am I doing here? And and they try to explain it to him. He's not believing it. But then he has to accept it because there he is in this, this strange world with, with his cousins. And rather than accepting it and embracing it and learning that, that, about the beauty of this world, that world Narnia, he gets angry. And he gets bitter. And, and, and he just wants to get out of there. He just wants nothing to do with his cousins, etc. So... He's told about a lion named Aslan, which is the Christ figure in Narnia. And he's never met him, and he, he thinks he's a fairy tale and all of that, but eventually he does. Now, between the time that he got there and between the time he met Aslan, because it's a magical land, Eustace, this boy, turned into a dragon, slowly but surely. And he, so by the time he meets um, Aslan, he's a dragon. And he doesn't want to be a dragon. And he's, he's in pain. And he goes to Aslan and 
in desperation, please, I want to be a boy again. And Aslan says to him, I will help you, but I have to cut you. And I have to cut deep. And so he agrees to do it. And so Aslan the lion takes his big sharp claws into the, the, the scales and the skin of, of the dragon and cuts right down the middle. And it hurts. But he also says it hurt in a way that that hurt, but I needed that. And he peels off, but there's another coat underneath. And he's still a dragon. And then Aslan says, you have to let me cut all the way in to get to who you really are. Beautiful story. Beautiful metaphor of what Christ can do for us. All contained in this prayer about depth of insight and so that you may be able to discern what is best and make good decisions. And as you're making good decisions, you may be pure. Pure not in the sense that you're perfect and never do anything wrong. It's more like you, if you're really thirsty and, and you need a glass of water and you have two glasses in front of you and one of them is gray and has stuff floating on the top and the other is, is crystal clear, which one are you going to take? You're going to take the, the clear one that looks good. It's going to refresh you. The other one, no, you've tasted that junk before. You want nothing to do with it. That's what our lives become as we allow the love of God to enter in deeper, deeper places in our hearts. Because we become the, the spring of water flowing out of us for other people to enjoy. That's what purity is about, that that. that What's helped me in my life, what's helped me in my heart of hearts by trusting God all the way to those deep places can help you also. And so purity and and the fruit of righteousness, um, blameless also. When when you're making good decisions, there's nothing to blame you for. People will still make accusations perhaps on true ones, but... You know in your heart you've done the right thing and you did it for the right reasons. That's, what, that's the place that, that this kind of love can take us to and then bear that fruit of righteousness, Galatians 5, fruit of the Spirit, um, that comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God. So that's my prayer for you. That's my desire for you, just like it was for Paul's. What a great prayer for the Philippian church, but because God in His wisdom included that in the Scriptures, it's also for us. So what stands out to you? What is most helpful from this passage? Take that thought, that principle, whatever it might be, and take that to the Lord and trust Him with your heart. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for love. The depth of love from you through Jesus. And help us to have the courage to invite that love into further and deeper places in our lives, in our heart of hearts. Show us what it is that that you want us to work on. And maybe we already know and we're afraid. Give us people around us to encourage us. Thank you for that love. In Jesus' name, amen.